This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the October issue of the Dayton Jewish Observer. First, from the Dayton section, new Shabbat dinner programs for young adults to launch October 1st. National nonprofit One Table and Federation Bring Project Here by Abigail Klein Leichman, Jewish Standard. Young Jewish adults seek out the weekly ritual of Friday night Shabbat dinners to build social connections, mitigate loneliness, and deepen ties to their community and Jewish identity. That is the conclusion of a study from One Table, a national nonprofit founded to support people in the 21 to 39 age range who want to find, share, and enjoy Shabbat dinners as a way of slowing down, meeting peers, unplugging from the week, creating intention in their lives, and building meaningful communities. From October 1st through December 31st, One Table will bring its Shabbat dinner project to the Miami Valley with a 50% funding match provided by the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton. The non-denominational One Table doesn't tell hosts what kind of experience to offer. It can be anything from a traditional dinner to a casual affair or an evening for a specific population such as LGBTQ Jews. Potential hosts fill out an application and once they are approved, work with One Table's field team to plan and publicize their dinner using One Table's social planning platform and step-by-step guide. Hosts can get nourishment credits of $15 per guest or a maximum of $150 per dinner to spend on groceries, decor, and more. Dayton's Jewish Federation will also provide Shabbat in the bag, some special items to enhance the Shabbat experience for our one-table participants, such as kosher challahs, Shabbat candles, tell and kvel cards, and a bottle of kosher wine, said Lydia Zembilevich, the Federation's development director. It's open to any young adults interested in hosting Shabbat in their homes, parks, or favorite hangout spots. I got involved with one table in my mid-twenties when I stumbled across it at a dinner party in Washington, D.C., said Ari Rubin, 30, one Table's Cincinnati community ambassador. He is coordinating One Table's expansion to the Miami Valley. Ruben has hosted One Table dinners in Charlotte and Philadelphia as well as in Cincinnati. One Table has allowed me to give other young professionals a place to call home on Shabbat, he said. He said One Table provides awesome financial nourishment, detailed Shabbat guides, and great recommendations to help elevate programming and bring dinners to the next level. Ruben said he hopes that guests will uh, guests who attend his dinners will want to become hosts themselves. Hosts mentioned that Friday night Shabbats with one table have reincorporated Friday night Shabbat back into their practice, he said. Many hosts would never or rarely celebrate Shabbat, and now they make an effort to do it at least once or twice a month. Additionally, hosts tell me they've met many friends through one-table dinners or met friends through work, sports leagues, and so on, and those friends have mentioned they're interested in getting more involved with their Judaism and finding a community to celebrate Shabbat. In the uh, the research study, Craving Connection, Researching One-Table's Impact, conducted by Benenson Strategy Group, provided data and insights about why young adults host and engage in Shabbat dinners and what keeps them coming back. In November and December 2021, BSG fielded a quantitative study on attitudes and behaviors. 
It gathered 1,938 responses from three cohorts of one-table participants, active hosts, active guests, and respondents who hadn't been to a dinner in more than a year, and a comparison group of 814 Jewish young adults who never participated in one table. Among the key findings of the report, people come for the connections and stay for the intention. Participants are looking for social connections within Jewish experiences regardless of whether they grew up with such experiences. Big issues of the day bring young people to Shabbat dinner. While one-table Shabbat participants and other young adults express concern over anti-Semitism and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, they consider climate change, racism, and COVID as more pressing issues for them. And these concerns increase their desire to attend a social Friday night dinner. Young adults experiencing Shabbat dinners with peers feel less lonely. Most one-table hosts, 86%, and guests, 79%, say that they've become closer with people and felt less lonely at their one-table dinner. About one in three guests met up again with someone they met at a one-table dinner. One-table participants also report feeling less lonely than the comparison group and are much less likely to hold feelings and attitudes associated with social loneliness than our other Jewish young adults. Shabbat dinners can lead to more Jewish engagement. About one in four participants said they've adopted new Jewish rituals or practices since their first dinner. Nearly one in three have sought out new Jewish organizations or communities in which to be involved. 75% of one-table participants are celebrating Shabbat when they wouldn't have otherwise. That's especially true of participants who did not have a regular Shabbat practice growing up. Aliza Klein, a co-founder and the CEO of One Table, said that while the pandemic exacerbated mental health challenges and feelings of loneliness, the ancient Jewish ritual of Shabbat dinner is as relevant as ever. Young adults in particular want the powerful social and emotional components of a peer Shabbat dinner and the Jewish experiences. To many participants, they are intrinsically tied together. David Siegel, founder and CEO of Meetup, the largest platform for finding and building local communities, commented on the findings in the report. By leveraging technology to help build connections, one table is tackling the crises of loneliness and disassociation from Judaism head-on, he said. It's exciting to see the impact of one table's strategy. To learn more or sign up to host One Table Shabbat dinners in the Miami Valley for people in the Jewish community ages 21 to 39, go to onetable.org. Intro to Judaism course enrolling. The Synagogue Forum of Greater Dayton will present its 14-session Introduction to Judaism course on Tuesdays from 7 to 8.30 beginning November 1st and running through February 28th. The annual class is open to anyone interested in Jewish learning, dialogue, and exploration. The course offers an in-depth look at Judaism from conservative, orthodox, traditional, and reform perspectives. Instructors are rabbis from Dayton synagogues. The registration fee is $36 for a single or couple. For more information or to enroll, email Rabbi Judy Chesson at jchesson, that's J-C-H-E-S-S-I-N, at AOL.com. Hadassah's Tea for 2, October 23rd. Beverly Musari of Gazebo Tea Garden in Blue Ash will be the speaker for Dayton Hadassah's Tea for 2 event at 2 p.m. Sunday, October 23rd 
at Glen Eagles Clubhouse, 560 Eagle Circle in Kettering. Participants at the afternoon tea will create a teacup planter with mint. Raffle tickets will be available for purchase to win gift baskets. As per National Hadassah guidelines, COVID waivers may be uh, COVID waiver, waivers may be required and will be available at the event. The cost, $18, includes a raffle ticket. RSVP by October 19th to Hindi Gruber at 937-681-3433. And next from the Dayton section of the Observer, Late Cantor's memoir published by Daughter. Three days before Cantor Joyce, Yuri Dumption died from pneumonia as a result of myelodysplastic syndrome in 2013. She finished writing her memoir, My Trip to Cancerland. Her intention was to have it published. This August, her daughter, Rachel Dumption Evans, was able to honor her mother's wishes with its publication via Amazon. It's her story, Rachel tells The Observer. It tells what happened when she got diagnosed with cancer, what she went through with her whole cancer diagnosis. She ended up losing her insurance, and then also what she did to try to get resources to help pay for treatment for different medications. Joyce, who served as Cantor at Temple Beth Orr from 1998 to 2011, received her diagnosis in 2009 when her daughter was in her first semester at Loyola University in Chicago. She ended up passing away my second semester senior year, Rachel says. Publishing her mother's book, Rachel says, is a relief. It's a weight off of my shoulders not to have it hanging over me anymore. I'm excited to share it with people who knew her and people who helped support her during that time. I want people to know her story. She wanted this book out there. Rachel also wanted to finally publish the book so that her 93-year-old grandparents, Joyce's parents, could see it in print. Joyce originally gave the manuscript to local author Martha Moody Jacobs, a friend of the family, who handled the first round of editing. Rachel took over the book project in 2017. It was emotional for me to get through the process, Rachel says, and every time you're reading it and just editing for spaces and commas, you get pulled back into what happened, where I was when all of this was happening. From Joyce's memoir, Rachel learned there was much her mother didn't share with her or her brother Nate, who was five years her senior. She was always very strong for us. We never saw her cry. She was so resilient and reading how much she wanted to live. The first thing she thought when she got diagnosed is, am I going to make it to Rachel's college graduation? It's knowing that she wanted that so, so much. Myelodysplastic syndrome is a form of cancer in which bone marrow doesn't make enough healthy blood cells. It causes infections, anemia, and easy bleeding. Joyce underwent an unsuccessful bone marrow transplant in September 2011. A Chicago native, Joyce moved to Dayton with her husband Irwin in 1986. Shortly after they joined Temple Beth Orr's choir in 1987, she was asked to become the Temple's volunteer choir director. In 1988, it became a paid position. A decade later, she was invested as a cantor by the American Conference of Cantors and the Cantors Assembly. As reported in The Observer at the time, two months before Joyce's bone marrow transplant, Temple Beth Orr's board eliminated her position as a full-time cantor, citing fiduciary responsibilities to the congregation. 
She was offered and accepted the part-time job of music specialist, which initially allowed her to continue to receive health insurance. In her memoir, Joyce included some articles from the Observer's coverage of her story. With the August publication of My Trip to Cancerland, Temple Beth Orr issued a statement to the Observer. Cantor Dumption was a gifted musician and educator who provided invaluable contributions to Temple Beth Orr over the course of 24 years of service. She pioneered the congregation's choir program and helped guide numerous pupils on their path to becoming B'nai Mitzvah. We are saddened to read her firsthand account of the difficulty she faced in her fight against cancer. Her memoir demonstrates the grace and strength she displayed in the face of hardship. May her memory be for a blessing. Rachel and her husband Andy named their son Jacob in memory of Joyce when he was born in 2020. Publishing her mother's memoir, Rachel says, is the last thing that I can really do for her other than living my life and raising my family in a way that she would have wanted. And next from The Observer, a piece I just wrote uh, after a journey down to Pigeon Forge a few weeks ago. Titanic Museum's tribute to Jewish passengers and crew draws direct line to immigration restrictions and the Holocaust. Touring exhibits planned for Jewish and Holocaust museums across America. Set below the Smoky Mountains not far from Dollywood and neighboring Gatlinburg, Drivers on the parkway in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, see outsized, bizarre architecture luring them and their kids to the attractions inside. A few blocks from a life-size King Kong on top of a truncated Empire State Building, across a parking lot from the Hatfield and McCoy Dinner Show, is a replica of the front half of the Titanic at the moment it struck an iceberg on April 14, 1912. Built at 50%, of the size of the original ship, it's still colossal. Though it's designed to appeal to visitors of all ages, the Titanic Museum is a serious, carefully curated experience, a tribute to the 1,512 passengers and crew who perished and 713 who survived its only voyage. With 400 Titanic artifacts, it's also an educational resource to school districts in 18 counties across the region. Through mid-February, visitors to the Titanic Museum in Pigeon Forge and its sister Titanic Museum in Branson, Missouri, will also see the Titanic Jewish Experience, a tribute to the ship's estimated 67 Jewish passengers and two Jewish crew members. Did you know Titanic had a kosher kitchen and a kosher chef on board, a sign announces at the entrance to the Titanic Museum? I did. I brought that to the world's attention in April 2012, the centennial of the ocean liner's sinking. The clues were hiding in plain sight. I connected the dots, wrote and distributed a series of articles about Jewish connections to the Titanic. Kosher food service on the Titanic shed light on Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe at that time period. Two years later, Israeli uh, Eli Moskowitz asked me if he could incorporate my findings into a book he was writing about Jewish connections to the Titanic. I gave him my blessing. Published in English in 2018, Moskowitz's The Jews of the Titanic is the definitive, comprehensive, and only book on the subject. Paul Burns, curator of Titanic Museum attractions and their Jewish Titanic experience, consulted Moskowitz and me about artifacts he might include in the Jewish exhibits. 
Because of COVID, the exhibit's planned Pigeon Forge and Branson openings were delayed from early 2020 until July 2021. I toured the Pigeon Forge Museum in August. The Titanic Jewish experience is integrated across the museum's galleries. Each Jewish element includes a blue star of David on its title card. Near the beginning of the exhibit is a reproduction of a White Star Line third-class menu from the time with the notation at the bottom, kosher meat supplied and cooked for Jewish passengers as desired. Along with an image from White Star Line ledger, Titanic crew had signed to work on the ship. The page includes the signature of Charles Kennel, who signed on as Titanic's Hebrew cook. A few steps away is a display of White Star Line kosher utensils, a dish marked meat and kosher fleshik in Yiddish, and forks and knives stamped milk, kosher milchik. These give a sense of how Titanic kosher food service might have looked. No kosher kitchenware has ever been found from the Titanic or its sister ship Olympic, which was scrapped in 1935. The White Star Line kosher dishes and utensils here date to 1919-1920. The earliest piece we have of White Star Line kosher utensils is 1913, Burns says. The 1913 piece is in our storage vaults. I just acquired it recently. I'm in total search now. We've got collectors across the world, the historians. We've got a couple of auction houses looking for us to find it. No kosher dishes or utensils have been salvaged from Titanic to date, Byrne says, because the kosher kitchen, located down on F deck, was in the back half of the ship, which split from the front during the sinking and fully collapsed when it hit the ocean floor. One of our collectors suggested the reason we don't see a lot of third-class artifacts from the Titanic era is these folks in this time period were not focused on taking souvenirs, Burns says. These people were focused on transferring their lives. These were immigration ships. A third-class passenger would not have taken a saucer or spoon or anything to put in their pocket for fear that they would, have, that they would get caught. The things we have from Titanic that are actual dishes and those kinds of things were carried off in second and first class. According to the Titanic Museum's count, 69 known Jews were aboard the Titanic. Of those, 39 died in the sinking, 14 first class, 10 second class, 13 third class, 2 crew, and 30 survived, 17 first class, 3 second class, 10 third class, and no crew. Burns and Moskowitz agree no one knows for certain how many Jews were aboard the Titanic. The museum used two factors to identify who was Jewish. If a person's mother was Jewish, the standard of halakha, Jewish law, and for those who survived if the person practiced Judaism after the sinking. On prominent display in a gallery focused on second class is the pocket watch of Titanic victim Sinai Cantor, 34, who was traveling to America from Vitebsk, Russia, Russia with his wife Miriam. The pocket watch, recovered from his body and returned to his wife, features Hebrew letters on its face and an embossed image of Moses and the Ten Commandments on its back. Its exposure to seawater rusted its movement and is visible on the watch face. In an era dedicated to the first class is a replica of a Titanic first class parlor suite dedicated for this special exhibit to the memory of Ida and Isidore Strauss, who both went down with the ship. 
On display here is the gold and onyx monogrammed pocket watch fob recovered from the body of Isidore Strauss. This marks the first time Strauss's great-grandson, Paul Kurtzman, has allowed the artifact to be exhibited. He's brought it to us one other time and allowed the press to take a photo when he's done talks for us here, but he's never allowed it out of his possession, Burns said. When we told him what we were doing, our Jewish tribute, he really wanted to do this. His son brought it out. We had a ceremony. Isidore Strauss's wedding band, also found when his body was recovered, is on display at the Branson Titanic Museum. When asked how he decides which artifacts to display in the two museums, Burns says some decisions are geared toward the visitor bases at the sites, but also to staff at each museum. Certain staff members gravitate to certain things, he says. We study this intently because we want people to have the best experience they can. We play with it a little, a little bit. The Strauss family story is the bridge to an unexpected direction for the Titanic Jewish experience. Titanic's connections to the Holocaust. Isidore Strauss's nephew, Nathan Strauss Jr., was roommates and best friends with Otto Frank, later the father of Anne and Margot Frank, when they both attended the University of Heidelberg, Germany in 1908. Otto Frank even went to work in New York for the Strauss family at Macy's in 1909 to get a better sense of international commerce. Years later, Nathan Strauss Jr. would encourage his friend Eleanor Roosevelt to write the introduction to the Diary of Anne Frank when it was published in America in 1952. But what historians didn't know until 2007, when a cache of letters between Otto Frank and Nathan Strauss Jr. from 1941 was discovered, was how urgently Frank tried to get his family out of the Netherlands into the United States, how he turned to Nathan Strauss Jr. for help, and how both were thwarted at every turn by the State Department and its ever-changing, ever-tightening immigration restriction rules. The narrative also forms the backbone of Ken Burns' new PBS documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Nothing could go right for them. The timing and what it took to get government consulates to move on the issue, curator Paul Burns says of attempts to rescue the Frank family, in the, museum, uh, the museum's music room, where Yiddish sheet music from 1912, the Titanic's disaster, is displayed with Titanic violinist Wallace Hartley's music portfolio case, a wall-sized display points out the Strauss-Frank-Titanic-Holocaust connection. Next to it, in a darkened area behind glass, is the rear of a violin of hope hung between concentration camp uniforms, one from a woman in Ravensbrück, the other from a man in Auschwitz. Since 1996, Israeli Amnon Weinstein has restored violins played by Jewish musicians during the Holocaust. 400 members of his own family perished in the Holocaust. In addition to a wall with the names and available images of Jewish Titanic passengers and crew, the remaining galleries teach about the Holocaust and Anne Frank's story. The Holocaust artifacts come from collector Stephen Cassidy, formerly of Cincinnati, now of North Florida. Mary Kellogg Jocelyn, who with her husband John Jocelyn owns Titanic Museum attractions, said the Strauss-Frank connection convinced her to include Holocaust education in the Jewish Titanic experience. You've got to know your history before you can move forward, Kellogg Jocelyn says. We always say our theme is courage, 
hope and resilience, those who didn't survive as well as those who did. And we established that 12 years ago when we started working with the schools. When the Jewish exhibit opened with Corona still at its height, she wrote a tagline for its panels, intolerance is a virus too. I don't do anything in a vacuum. With intolerance is a virus, I went to teachers and they debated. It was a big debate whether it should be on show cards and part of the promotion campaign. I only had one teacher who said, I'm not sure you should do that. Out of the 12 teachers, 11 agreed. Because the Pigeon Forge and Branson Museums attract much repeat business, they change out items each year and also present special exhibits such as the Titanic Jewish Experience. We have always paid tribute to different passengers on the ship, the Irish, the children, the musicians. Kellogg Jocelyn says there have been at least 12 different categories that we've acknowledged. Burns says they haven't marketed or promoted the Jewish experience to Jews specifically. We picked these markets, Pigeon Forge and Branson, for a reason, obviously because they're visitor-based markets, he says, but we are seeing Jewish people come in, individual families, couples. When we were installing this, we had several folks come up and identify themselves as Jewish and say, thank you for telling this story. But they would always do it in a whisper, Mary adds. From the Jewish community, they would say, you're so brave to do this. I was kind of taken back. I said, I'm not afraid. And I did get pushback from some people who said, I came here to see the Titanic, not the Holocaust. When that happens, I know the crew didn't talk to that person because we're very clear how each relates to the other. Immigration was the first function of the great ocean liners of Titanic's era, Burns says. We do tell the story of immigration because people come to us believing they think of it, the Titanic, in terms of a cruise ship. Immigration is what caused the Titanic, says Jews of the Titanic author Eli Moskowitz, who made the trip from near Galim, Israel, to Pigeon Forge in July. And the lack of immigration is one of the things that made the Holocaust what it was. Burns was shocked to learn from talking to teens in the exhibit that they thought Anne Frank survived the Holocaust. We have a docent tell the story of the diary in the music room. Despite the setbacks of COVID, including closure of the museum for three months, tourism in Pigeon Forge bounced back this summer. Approximately 100,000 uh, 100, people a month visited the Titanic Museum in June, July, and August, according to Kellogg Jocelyn. She brought members of Knoxville's Jewish community at 30 miles away, the nearest Jewish community at Pigeon Forge, to the museum for a kosher dinner and tour, she also brought Strauss Historical Society Executive Director Joan Adler to give a talk at Knoxville's JCC. Moskowitz gave a talk there, too. Kellogg, Jocelyn, and Burns say they're now preparing to bring the Titanic Jewish experience to Jewish and Holocaust museums across America. It will be the Titanic Museum Attraction's first touring exhibit. We're very comfortable knowing that this may be even 23-24 or 24-25, Burns says. We could make it as sm small as 500 square feet, but could go to 2,000 to 3,000 square feet. A few museums have already contacted them, Kellogg Jocelyn adds. Moskowitz says his visit to the museum was overwhelming. It was very emotional for me when I was there. I was walking around with my yarmulke. There might be Jews in Pigeon Forge, but there's no Jewish community. Every Titanic Museum visitor first receives a boarding pass with the profile of a passenger. 
There were boarding passes for each passenger. There were boarding passes of each passenger. At the end of the tour, visitors can look at the names to find out if their passenger died or survived. For the run of the Titanic Jewish experience, star, uh, Jewish passengers' boarding passes were printed with a blue star of David at the top. A lot of the visitors got Jewish passengers, Moskowitz notes. They have no connections to Judaism, and there they are, walking around with a Jewish name, and they're learning about the person and finding out that they survived or not. Maybe it can contribute to less hatred between groups of people. At least people get to learn a little bit about the Jews. The Titanic Jewish Experience at the Titanic Museum Attractions in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and Branson, Missouri is on display through mid-February. For more information, go to titanicpigeonforge.com or titanicbranson.com. And next from the Mazel Tov section of the Observer, Tabitha Wharton has been named Development Coordinator for Dayton Live. She was promoted from the position of Senior Ticket Agent in August. Eliza Lambert has received her Ph.D. in Counselor Education and Supervision from the Virginia Commonwealth University. She begins her new career at Rutgers University this fall and will teach graduate students for the Department of Psychiatric Re Rehabilitation and Counseling Professions. Her dissertation focused on Jewish youths with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Eliza is the daughter of Ira and Karen Weiss of Solon and the granddaughter of Robert Kahn of Kettering. Let us know what's going on by you and yours. Send your Mazel Tov announcements to me, Marshall Weiss, at mweiss at jfgd.net. And here's a life cycle announcement. Jonah Elliott Hallis will be called to the Torah as a bar mitzvah on Saturday, October 29th at Temple Israel. He is the son of Scott Hallis and Rabbi Karen Bodney Hallis and the brother of Ethan Hallis. He is the grandson of Jerry and Maxine Hallis of Centerville, Martin and Lynn Pullman of Overland Park, Kansas, and Howard and Beatrice Bodney of Overland Park, Kansas. Jonah is a seventh grade student at Watts Middle School in Centerville. His interests are video games and sports, sports, and more sports. He loves everything Ohio State and roots for the Chicago Bears, Blackhawks, Bulls, and Cubs. Jonah is on the Centerville 13U Select Baseball team and has played soccer. He enjoys spending his summers at Goldman Union Camp Institute of Zionsville, Indiana, where he spends every summer. For his mitzvah project, Jonah has been volunteering at Four Paws for Ability and Xenia, a nonprofit that enriches the lives of children and adults with disabilities by the training and placement of quality task-trained service dogs. He is also collecting baseball and softball equipment for pitch-in for baseball and softball, which provides equipment to under-resourced children in every state and 110 countries worldwide, including Israel. And next in the religion section of The Observer, an article by Jonah's mom, Recognize the Good by Rabbi Karen Bodney Hallis, Temple Israel. As we move through the high holy days, we approach Yom Kippur with a sense of dread. We anticipate feelings of guilt and regret, in addition to hunger, because we know the time is upon us to look critically at ourselves. The task is painful, but appropriately so. We should expect to feel badly for the many times we missed the mark, having done something that we knew was wrong. These feelings of remorse are a part of our teshuva, repentance. 
in which we must acknowledge our bad behavior, seek forgiveness, correct wrongs, and hopefully reach a place of healing. This is guilt at its best. It focuses on our bad behavior and propels us to do better. It is a starting block. Once we experience it, we move forward. Uh, we move toward teshuva, which not only brings healing to our relationships, but helps to build our confidence that we can do better. A healthy dose of guilt and humility is appropriate for this time of year. Through our vidui confession, we put ourselves out there, bearing it all. But sometimes it can be too much. Some of us surpass feeling guilty to a point where it is no longer healthy. Rather, we feel ashamed. According to Dr. Brené Brown, an expert in shame and vulnerability, so long as we have the capacity for connection and empathy, we experience shame. Shame is feeling bad about who we are, not what we have done. It comes from a belief that we ourselves are flawed and unworthy. This is not helpful, but destructive. Shame does not help us in our teshuva. It is highly correlated with self-destructive thoughts and behavior. It is important that we temper our self-effacement so that we remember we condemn the behavior and choices, not ourselves. To avoid shame, we can not only focus on our failures or we'll lose the confidence that we can do better. Positive reinforcement is important. There is a Jewish value known as hakarat hatov, recognizing the good. It helps keep shame at bay during the high holidays, reminding us that we are more than the mistakes we have made. It reminds us that the souls within us are pure and long to do good in the world. This resonates with the lesson of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. He taught that we can be led forth from darkness by looking for the good in ourselves. Despite how it may sound, recognizing our strengths can be an important part of our High Holy Days. When we allow ourselves to acknowledge the love and goodness we have given and received, we open ourselves up to the idea that we can change the direction of our lives. We know positive reinforcement is a strong motivator, it can help us to strengthen ourselves and our character. On Yom Kippur, when we come bearing our souls, we pray that God will move from the throne of judgment, holding us accountable to the throne of mercy, granting us pardon. Is it too much to ask that we offer ourselves the same? Can we hold ourselves accountable for our failings while also balancing being accountable for our strengths? I believe we can and we should. This, too, is part of our teshuva. With this in mind, I offer a prayer of Hakarat Hatov from Mishkan HaNefesh, the Reform High Holy Days prayer book. For every act of goodness. Let us affirm the good we have done. Let us acknowledge our acts of healing and repair for the good we have done by acting with self-restraint and self-control the good we have done through acts of generosity and compassion, for the good we have done by offering children our love and support, for the good we have done by honoring our parents with care and respect, for the good we have done through acts of friendship and hospitality, for the good we have done through acts of forgiveness and reconciliation, for the good we have done by keeping promises and honoring commitments, for the good we have done through the work of our hands by serving others, for the good we have done by caring for the earth and sustaining its creatures, 
for the good we have done by housing the homeless, feeding the hungry, and welcoming the stranger, for the good we have done by acting with integrity and honesty, for the good we have done through thoughtful and encouraging words, for the good we have done by caring for our health and that of our loved ones, for the good we have done by strengthening our Jewish community, for the good we have done through acts of civic engagement and tikkun olam. All these have brought light and healing into the world. May these acts inspire us to renew our efforts in the year to come. May we continue to move from strength to strength in this new year. May we all be spurred on by both judgment and mercy to make this world a better place filled with shalom. And next from the Jewish Family Education section of The Observer, Marshmallows and Muscles from the Power of Stories series by Candace R. Quietek. A boy asked his mother for a third slice of cake. No, she answered. Please, Mom, just one more piece. Again, his mother said no. The boy didn't give up. Please, just one, I promise. Finally, the mother gave in. Okay, but that's it. No more. The boy grinned. Honestly, Mom, you have no self-control. In the famous 1972 Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, individual children were seated in front of a single marshmallow and told they could eat it whenever they chose. Or they could get two if they waited until the researcher returned. Not unexpectedly, most of the children tried to wait, but eventually ate the treat. While one follow-up study erroneously concluded childhood self-control is predictive of later life success, Every other related study to date has proven self-control is a learnable skill, not an inborn trait. Brain science concurs. Behavior patterns are shaped primarily by neural pathways connecting competing brain centers for learning, memory, instinct, emotions, and reasoning. The more repetitive a behavior, the more its specific pathway becomes myelinated and the more rapid and automatic the behavior. By definition, self-control neural pathways connect brain centers in ways that foster thoughtful, uh, thoughtful free will decision-making, unrestricted by other forces, internal or external. The more those pathways are used, the more self-control becomes natural. Ultimately, self-control is about freedom. Millennia before the revelations of marshmallows and myelin, the notion of self-control was already evident in the Torah. In Genesis, humans were created with free will, the ability to make choices and thereby determine personal character and destiny. But as the Torah's early stories revealed, choices were more often reflexive or emotional rather than thoughtful. Generations later came the Exodus. Not just a physical liberation from slavery under Pharaoh, Exodus symbolized the repudiation of enslavement of any kind, peer pressure, expectations, impulses, feelings. The best choices would rely on free will decision-making. Shortly thereafter came the revelation at Sinai. There the Jewish people received the mitzvot, the commandments, a framework for making choices. Mitzvot are essentially a system of daily training exercises designed to forge the neural pathways for self-control. 
Neat's voter also tacit acknowledgement that self-control is learned and therefore achievable by everyone. Self-control has been described as rational choice for transcendent values and insight evident in the following stories. Integrity. The Talmudic sage Shimon ben Shatach made his living working with linen. To make his life easier, his students purchased a donkey from an Arab in the marketplace. As he thanked his students, Ben Shatach spied a small pouch tied around the animal's neck. Inside was a valuable pearl. His students were thrilled at their teacher's unexpected good fortune, but Ben Shatach told them to return it. He purchased a donkey, not a pearl. His students disagreed. According to the law, we don't need to return it since the pearl was attached to the animal when we bought it. Ben Shatach countered, Of what use is my learning if I don't act in the right way? The rabbi located the merchant and returned the pearl. The Arab was so shocked, all he could say was, Blessed be the God of Shimon ben Shatach. Commitment. For Louis Brandeis, life at Harvard Law School was challenging. Daily, he was pestered by fellow students, encouraging him to discard his Judaism. He could have an extraordinary legal career, they'd say, even become a Supreme Court justice, if not for his Judaism. Brandeis listened, but said nothing. By his final year of law school, Brandeis's preeminence was undisputable. He was invited, the first Jew ever, to join the school's honor society. At his induction, Brandeis approached the lectern, paused, and said, I am sorry that I was born a Jew. The room erupted into applause and cheers. When the room quieted, Brandeis began again. I'm sorry that I was born a Jew, but only because I wish I had the privilege of choosing Judaism on my own. For a long moment, there was stunned silence. And then, awed by Brandeis's conviction and unequivocal choice, the members of the exclusive Harvard Honor Society gave the honoree a standing ovation. Empowerment. In danger of being tossed out of yeshiva, a student approached his advisor. I really want to stay here, but I can't seem to keep the rules. It's like there's someone inside pushing me to do things I know I shouldn't do. The advisor responded, work on your knuckle-cracking habit. Even the small act of stopping yourself from doing something you want to do will give your soul the feeling of what it's like to exercise self-control. And then you'll experience a different sort of self-empowerment not the type that says, I can have whatever I want whenever I want it, but the empowerment that comes from saying, I'm in control, and I won't let myself constantly fall prey to self-defeating acts that feel good momentarily, but at the end, uh, but that end up destroying me in the long run. Self-control is like a muscle, psychology professor Roy Baumeister concludes, the more you use it, the stronger it gets greater good you will accomplish for yourself and for others. And next literature to share is suggested by Candice Arquiatech, Aging with a Plan, How a Little Thought Today Can Vastly Improve Your Tomorrow, by Sharona Hoffman. Caring for aging family members or planning for your own golden years, this book is a concise, comprehensive, and user-friendly planning resource with all the information you need to know, medical, financial, legal, and more but have no time to research on your own. It includes practical advice alongside scholarly research, anecdotes and observations, 
planning outlines, chapter summaries, and checklists to match your working or reading style for the sandwich generation and seniors alike. Spoken by Midnight by uh, Brad Graber. You'll see echoes of the Golden Girls in this delightfully humorous tale of widowers living out their retirement years at the Boca Raton Resort and Club. It weaves together all the elements of long lives well lived, complicated family relationships, friendships, sadness and loss, and even mystery. It's witty, laugh-inducing, and thought-provoking. How Dahlia Put a Big Yellow Comforter Inside a Tiny Blue Box by Linda Heller. If you're looking for a picture book that encourages tzedakah, righteous giving, and self-control for primary ages, this one is the perfect choice. After creating her own tzedakah box, Dahlia puts the coins she earns for chores into it each day, teaching her little brother all about sharing and caring for others along the way. And then the magic happens. Read this one as a family and make your own tzedakah box. And next from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer, Myth and Memory in Photographer's Toy Dioramas, an interview with David Leventhal by Hannah Casper Levinson, special to The Observer. David Leventhal is a photographer based in New York whose exhibit, American Myth and Memory, David Leventhal Photographs, opens October 15th at the Dayton Art Institute. The exhibit is on tour from the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Leventhal works in series inspired by historic events and American cultural icons. His signature style first emerged in graduate school at Yale in the 1970s. He captures familiar miniature toys, dolls, and toy soldiers set up in a diorama with the camera very close to the subject. This creates a narrow depth of field like looking through a peephole giving the effect of peering into a realistic environment. To unravel David Leventhal's work is to question our universal fascination with miniatures. The miniature takes us back to the ancient Egyptians who buried their dead with clay representations of everything they may have needed in the afterlife. Tools, furniture, and servants all small enough to hold in one's hand. The earliest evidence of the dollhouse itself a miniature was one made for a Bavarian duke in 1558. The connection between miniature and imagination is based largely in a relationship to childhood. To see detail in small things requires such attention that to experience it detaches you from the surrounding world. The make-believe world of a child is much the same. Miniatures and childhood also bring associations of fairy tales. In Hans Christian Andersen's Thumbelina, the protagonist is so minuscule that she experiences her own world within the real one. Like a fairy tale, the playfulness in Leventhal's photos mask more complex themes rooted in adult subject matter. Here, David Leventhal talks about his influences and the connections to Judaism in his work. How did photography become your medium? When I went to college in 1966, my intention was to be a poli-sci major and to go to law school. That lasted pretty much one class. There was something at Stanford called the Free University. Anyone could teach a course on anything. Dwight, a friend who taught there, was the epitome of cool. He had really long hair, and every time I saw him on campus, there were beautiful women with him, and I thought, I want to be like that. Dwight was teaching a photography class and taught me how to develop film and make a print. 
I just became so fascinated by it. Stanford at the time did not offer photography, which I feel was a very positive thing for me because it meant that if I wanted to do it, I had to be self-motivated. What do you hope the viewer takes away from your work? So much of my imagery draws upon everyone's own visual memories, film, television, paintings. When you look at my photographs, there's often not a lot of detail, but the images in the photograph play off of one's own visual memory bank. It's like you're filling in a lot of the space and creating a story about what had happened and what is about to happen. The collection of the Dayton Art Institute includes epic paintings depicting battle scenes, landscapes, historical figures. They make me think of your subject matter. What inspires you? As a 13-year-old, my parents took my sister and I to Europe, and I remember going to the Louvre every day. And I loved the history paintings, those magnificent battles, the king on, the horseback, on horseback in the foreground. Painting to this day is still a big influence. When I was doing the Cowboy series, I referenced a lot of Remington and Russell, painters who depicted the American West. If you were making toys in the 30s and 40s, your reference was probably those painters. Figures on horseback were sculpted from a painting and made into a toy, which I then photographed. So much of my inspiration comes from film. I loved looking at the John Wayne movie The Searchers to get a sense of the background colors and tried to replicate it in my photograph. Does being Jewish or your personal identity play into your work? I think my Jewishness really impacted me when I was doing the Mein Kampf series. I would say probably most of the photographs I did in that series were related to the Holocaust, using documentary photographs as a starting point. I was in Graz, Austria for a gallery show. I found this store that had military memorabilia and a Hitler toy figure. I was talking to the owner and he proceeded to tell, to tell me about someone who had the old toy molds from the 1930s and 40s who was living in the Black Forest and still making these figures. I was able to get a number of the figures. It says a lot that these toys are still being made. I received a Guggenheim grant and a friend of mine who is a Holocaust scholar at UMass Amherst arranged for me to stay at the study center outside of Auschwitz. I was all alone in this large dormitory. I was literally right across the dirt road from Auschwitz. Auschwitz was set up almost like an exhibition, but Birkenau was just there, totally raw. There were very few people. I remember walking up the tower under which the trains came. It was about four stories high. I was up there by myself looking down at the train tracks and you could see people but they were so miniaturized. They almost seemed not human. Almost like toys. Yeah, which was a really strange feeling to have. I read a book that said at Birkenau there was a pond way at the back and that if you dip your hand into the water and pull out some mud, you'll see bone fragments which turned out to be absolutely true. Did you do that? I did that, walking along those train tracks and thinking this is where people were disembarked from the cars. It's probably the same gravel that was there. It was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It was very impactful. It gave me a better sense of a lot of the Jewish stories of that time. 
When I exhibited the work, I was always very conscious and hopeful that people would not be hurt or offended by my use of the toy figures. I had a number of survivors come over to tell me how touched they were by the work, and that meant so much to me. I'm using toys. I'm trying to be as passionate and creative as I can be, but it's still toys. To hear that really made me feel great. American Myth and Memory, David Leventhal photographs on view October 15th through January 15th at the Dayton Art Institute, 456 Belmont Park, North Dayton. For more information, go to DaytonArtInstitute.org or call 937-223-4278. And next in the Arts and Culture section of the Observer, an arts harvest for October. This October brings rich arts offerings with Jewish connections to our region, and it begins in Springfield. Those who missed the national tour, Bartlett Scherer's production of Fiddler on the Roof in June at the Schuster Center can take it in at 8 p.m. Friday, October 7th, for one night at the Clark State Performing Arts Center. This is the production with Israeli Hofesh Schechter's updated choreography based on Jerome Robbins' original. Now in the role of Tevia is another Israeli, Jonathan Hashmoneh, a descendant of Holocaust survivors. Tickets are available at etix.com or 937-328-3874. Yitzhak Perlman is the soloist with the Springfield Symphony Orchestra conducted by music director Peter Stafford Wilson at 7.30 p.m. Saturday, October 15th, also at the Clark State Performing Arts Center. The beloved violinist will perform Beethoven's Violin Concerto. Perlman requests that audience members wear masks at the concert. For tickets, go to Springfield Sim. SpringfieldSYM.org or call 937-328-3874. The Dayton LGBT Film Festival will screen the 2022 Holocaust documentary Nellie and Nadine at 1 p.m. Sunday, October 16th at the Neon. Directed by Magnus Gerten, Nellie and Nadine explores the love story of two prisoners at Ravensbrück concentration camp in 1944. After liberation, they reunited and stayed together for the rest of their lives. Gerton follows Nellie's granddaughter Sylvie as she learns about Nellie and Nadine's relationship. Just prior to Nellie and Nadine, the festival will present this short subject, Monsieur Le Bouch, directed by Jude Dry, who unexpectedly ends up living back at home with their lovingly opinionated Jewish mother who doesn't quite get the whole trans thing. Tickets are available at DaytonLGBT.com and at the door. The JCC Cultural Arts and Book Series kicks off its season with veteran comedian Rita Rudner talking about her memoir, My Life in Dog Years, virtually but before a live audience, at 7 p.m. Thursday, October 20th at the Funny Bone at the Green. Opening for Rudner in person will be local comedian Karen Jaffe at 6.45 p.m. To purchase tickets and for the complete CABS lineup, go to jewishdayton.org. Union Terminal in Cincinnati will be the venue for the Nancy and David Wolf Holocaust and Humanity Center's presentation of Defiant Requiem, Verdi at Teresa at 6 p.m. Sunday, October 23rd. This multimedia concert drama presents the story of the Jewish prisoners in the Teresa concentration camp, in 1944, who performed Verdi's Requiem there 16 times, including for SS officials from Berlin and an international Red Cross delegation. Their conductor, Raphael Schechter, told the choir, we will sing to the Nazis what we cannot say to them. 
with full orchestral accompaniment and the Northern Kentucky University Chamber Choir and Northern Kentucky Community Chorus. Defiant Requiem encompasses a full performance of Verdi's Requiem, video testimony of survivors from the original chorus, segments of the Nazi propaganda film made at Theresien in 1944, and actors who move the story forward. Tickets are available at the door. The Bach Society of Dayton Chorus, Orchestra, and Soloists will perform Handel's Biblical Oratorio, Israel and Egypt, conducted by David Crean at 4 p.m. Sunday, October 30th at Kettering Adventist Church. With its libretto taken from the Book of Exodus and Psalms 105 and 106, Israel and Egypt sets the story of the Israelites' deliverance in music and words that Handel sculpted to evoke each scene, especially the plagues. Tickets are available at the door. And some other events coming up in October in the Jewish community. Temple Israel will have its Sukkot and Pizza in the Hut Sunday, October 9th at 6 p.m. It's $5 for adults, $3 for children, ages 4 to 12. Temple Israel's is at 130 Riverside Drive in Dayton. RSVP by October 4th to T-I-D-A-Y-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Chabad Young Professionals Sukkah Social will also be Sunday, October 9th, 7 p.m., and that's at Chabad, 2001 Far Hills Avenue in Oakwood. Email Chabad at ChabadDayton.com. Chabad Men's Night Out in the Sukkah is Wednesday, October 12th. And that's with the Top Shelf Scotch. 6.15 p.m. It is $59. Uh, it is well worth it, too. And that's at Chabad. RSVP to ChabadDayton.com forward slash RSVP. Beth Abraham will have sushi in the sukkah for teens Thursday, October 13th at 6.30 p.m. And Beth Abraham is at 305 Sugar Camp Circle, Oakwood, 937-293-9520. Temple Beth Orr's Feast in the sukkah will be Friday, October 14th, 6.30 p.m., followed by Shabbat service. And Temple Beth Orr's at 525 Marshall, uh, 5275 Marshall Road, Washington Township, 937 496 0050. Beth Jacob schmoozing in the sukkah. Sunday, October 16th, 11 a.m. This will include a nosh in arts and crafts. Beth Jacob is at 7020 North Main Street in Harrison Township. RSVP by October 2nd by calling 937-274-2149. For seniors, Ohio Senior Health Insurance Information Program Medicare Checkup uh, will be held Friday, October 21st from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Boot Shop Center for Jewish Culture and Education here at 525 Versailles Drive in Centerville. Set a time and register at 937-610-1555. Camp Shalom and PJ Library present Down on the Farm Sunday, October 2nd at 6 p.m. It's free. It's at Lucas Brothers Farm, which is 3229 Ferry Road in Bellbrook. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. Jewish Community Centers, Youth and Teen, uh, Theater Auditions, Wednesday, October 9th, 6.30. Sunday, October 23rd, 1.15. That's for grades 3 to 12. At the Boone Shop CJCE as well. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.